Hey, everyone. Last night. Boo, but snaps. Boo, but snaps. <laughs> it has been a privilege to be with you for this week. I'm so grateful for uh, the opportunity to, to share God's word with you. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this uh, has been a time of um, encouragement, that you have been enriched as you've uh, thought about these things and connected with one another and had fun around the beach. And um, I hope that the Lord gets you home safely. I will pray for traveling mercies for all of you. Um, but thanks again for your kind attention. It's been uh, a gift to me. And for our last um, session tonight, we are going to open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. The book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Sword drill, who's there? Strong. <laughs> All right. All right, this is God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have been kind through this week to teach us from your word, to equip us and encourage us. But most of all, you have been pleased to shine the light on your son, Jesus, who has rescued us from our sins. And we pray that now, Lord, we would fix our eyes on him once again and that our hearts would be warmed and changed by what we hear and that we would live the new life. That is the gift of the Spirit. And so, Lord, continue your work tonight. Bless these, my friends, these students, to be both hearers and doers of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before I became a pastor, I was in show business. I did Broadway kind of stuff. And I went to New York City, to NYU, to train for, for a life in show business. And in my training, there was one class that I had to take called Scene Analysis. And in this class, the professor would give us a scene from a, a play or a scene from a musical. And he would assign us to uh, a particular scene. He would assign you to a group. And as a group, you would deal with this scene. And the first thing that we would do when we got our scene is we would read it the whole way through to see where this thing was going. And once we saw where the scene was going, then we knew who we had to become as characters. Because the scene would tell us everything that we were supposed to say everything that we were supposed to think. The scene would tell us the way that we were supposed to relate to the other characters in the scene. And then we would rehearse the scene together as a group, and we would practice. But the professor wouldn't leave us to ourselves. And after a while, the professor would come and would give us direction and would coach us on our scene work. Because the professor was very intent on seeing us get this scene off of the page and into real life because he knew that at the end of the year, we were going to have a showcase. And at that showcase, we're going to be agents and managers and all kind of important people who are going to come to see the scene work that we were doing. Now, we've been talking about peace with God all week. We've been talking about reconciliation. And tonight, I want us to do some scene work. Because the Lord has given us a final scene that He wants to see worked out among us. And when we get this scene and we read through this scene, we are instructed about the way that we are supposed to relate to one another. We're instructed about the way that we're supposed to think, the way that we're supposed to speak, and the way that we're to relate to the other characters in the scene. And the Lord is not content with this scene remaining on the pages of Scripture. He wants to see this scene worked out among us in this life. Because at the end of the age, there is going to be a showcase in which we all come together and work it out in the presence of His glory. We've been talking about reconciliation, and you might well wonder, what's the big goal of it all? What's the point of it all? Where, where are we going with this whole thing? And tonight in our text, we see the goal of reconciliation. We see where it's all headed. And so we're going to get into our text for tonight through two points, where we consider Perceiving the goal and pursuing the goal. Perceiving the goal, seeing it, and pursuing the goal, going after it, working it out. So let's look at our first point, perceiving the goal. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it can seem pretty intimidating and pretty confusing. Uh, but it doesn't need to be intimidating or confusing because there's a big picture theme that's going on in the book of Revelation. And the theme is that Christ the King 
will bring his kingdom to pass and he will renew all things and everything sad and broken and evil will be done away with. But it comes to us through this apostle named John. And John is exiled, as he puts it, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because the emperor of Rome at the time required citizens to confess that he was Lord and God. And John knew of one Lord and God, and that was Jesus Christ. And he refused to bow down to the emperor. And so he was exiled on an island. And while he was on that island, the Lord revealed to him what we have as the book of Revelation. He gave this to him. And he gave this this revelation to John in order to help the church to have endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. That's why the book of Revelation was given to the church, so that they would have endurance in persecution and assurance in victory. And he does this by giving them an astonishing picture of the end of days, the the final climax of the story of God, the climax of history. But here's the question. What exactly was it that John saw? Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What was it that John saw in these visions, in this revelation? The first thing that John saw in our text is diversity. The first thing he saw was diversity. Now think about this. This is a picture of glory. And John could have kept the crowd generic. John could have just said, and behold, I saw a whole lot of people praising God. But that's not what he says. John feels compelled to tell us the the ethnic diversity that was represented there at the throne room. And the reason why... John tells us about the diversity in the throne room is because he's able to see the diversity of the throne room. He's trying to bring you into the scene. It's not enough to keep it generic. John brings us in to the diversity of this throne room scene. And you notice, if you look at the text, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, I want you to see that The diversity gets down even into specific dialects and diverse tribal distinctions of the peoples of the world. In other words, here's the deal. He doesn't just see Nigerians. He sees Yoruba and Igbo people. He doesn't just see Kenyans. He sees Maasai and Kamba people. He doesn't just see Chinese. He sees Tibetan and Mongolian people. He sees Arabs and Americans, Bengalis and Punjabis, Danes and Dominicans, Jews and Japanese, Persians and Portuguese, Scottish and Somali, Peruvians and Polynesians. John saw diversity in this final scene, and you and I must see it as well. 
Because it's become popular for people today to say, I don't see color. I just see people. But here we see that God sees it and the Apostle John sees it. And this is in glory. So even something of our created diversity right now makes it into glory. And it's important enough to get mentioned in the book of Revelation. God wants us to see the diversity that he has created. Because it takes the entirety of that diversity in order to give us a taste of the image of God. A God who is one and three and three and one and who has manifold excellencies. It takes all of the diverse people groups of the world in order to give us a sense of all that he is. To bring out the different facets of his greatness and his goodness. God loves the diversity of all that he has made. And we must love what God loves. That's one of the things that we get not only from the scriptures, but, but from our Reformed heritage. that we John Calvin said that we are to think God's thoughts after him. That we are to, to love like God loves and hate what God hates. God hates evil. God hates injustice. God hates sin. And we must too. But God loves grace. And God loves the created diversity that he has made. And we must as well. This is simply thinking God's thoughts after him in good John Calvin style. Is anybody out there invited John Calvin into their heart? Come on. All right. All right. Here's the deal. We need to take a moment also to remember that the book of Revelation was given to the church at the very beginning of its mission. Think about that. The book of Revelation was given to the church at the very beginning of its mission. And at the very beginning of its mission, the church is given a picture of the final, the final scene of the people of God gathered around the throne with the Lord. And one of the reasons why is because it was important for their mission. It was to give them a sense of, of the diversity of people that they as the church were to be gathering. This is the final picture that God presents to the church. And the church must have a sense of that final picture because it's instructive for the life that we are to live now. And the mission we are to conduct now, which is God's mission. And as the church, if you read the book of Acts, as the church was going out... And, and working out the mission of God, they came into contact with all different kinds of people. And before long, they started to not only just go and do outreach to the people who were out there who were not like them, but soon they started to gather these same people into their churches. They started to gather these same people into their communities, and they lived together as the family of God. And no doubt... When you got all of these different people together, conflicts started to arise. Struggles started to emerge. Difficulties, the grind of life where people were having hard times with one another. And things could get so tense at times. We see this in the scriptures. Things could get so tense at times that Christian people might be tempted to wonder, is this even going to happen? 
How can we continue? This is just bananas. I don't know how we're going to continue to live together, how we're going to continue to be together in the same church, in the same family. Things are too tense. We're too different. And one of the reasons why God gives this picture is to provide encouragement for his church. It shall be done. It shall be done. The work that God began is the same work that God will bring to completion. The God who began a good cross-cultural work of gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will complete that work. And so now, as you lean into that in the present time, you must press on in faith, in hope, in love, knowing that God guarantees the final picture. We're going to get tired. We will grow weary at times. But we must not be dismayed. And we must not be discouraged. And we must not grow weary in our well-doing. God guarantees the final picture. God will see it through. Even when we're tired, we don't feel like we can go on anymore. He guarantees it. And we must remember that this is a picture of glory. It's a vision of the future, y'all. And this, this scene should shape what we love, what we care about, and what we're after right now. This is the final perfect picture of God. John saw diversity, but that's not the only thing that John saw. Look at verses 9 through 10. What were these diverse people doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The next thing that John saw was doxology. Now, if you grew up in church, when you hear the word doxology, you probably think, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures. You think doxology, but you know what doxology means? It means to glorify. It means to worship. The next thing that John saw was worship. He saw diversity and he saw doxology. Now listen, worship is so critical. Worship is at the beginning of God's story. Worship is in the middle of God's story. And worship is at the end of God's story. And every one of you sitting in here tonight is a worshiper. You are a worshiper. And every Sunday when you come to church, what do you hear at the very beginning of service? A call to worship. And a psalm might be read. Joe has given us some calls to worship this week. But you hear a call to worship. God is always calling us to worship, summonsing us to worship, inviting us, welcoming us. But you know what? God's not the only one inviting us to worship. Money is inviting us to worship. Money issues a call to worship. Success issues you a call to worship. And it says, come, bow down and kneel before me. I can save. There are all kinds of other voices that are calling for you to worship. But I want you to see something in this final scene. That there is 
There is only one, one picture that makes sense of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being drawn together. And it was not worship of money. It was not worship of success. There are many things that were not in the center of that diverse crowd. And there was only one who was. And you need to listen to the way that John describes him in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Jesus himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the one who's in the center, holding all of these diverse people groups together. It's not programs. It's not outreach events. It is the Lord Jesus who is holding these people together. And listen to the way that John describes him. And this is going to make sense of why they were gathered together. And it was like the most raucous event that you've ever been a part of. With loud voices, the text emphasizes, I want you to think of the rumble of the voices of the multitudes, thousands upon thousands, who are crying out, salvation belongs to our God. And why were they so ecstatic? Why were they so exclamatory? This is why. This is who they were seeing. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, now go back to Revelation chapter 7 and see what all the shouting was about. See what all the celebration was about. See what all the exclamatory praise was about. It was about this one described here in this text. Being beheld by the multitudes. And they are absolutely feeling the G-forces of his glory. His weighty presence. His heaviness. And they are absolutely overwhelmed by him. And not only are they overwhelmed by him, but they're overwhelmed because of who they have become because of him. Do you notice in the text that they are dressed with white robes because they've been clothed with the glory of Christ? They have been washed by the blood of the lamb. They are astonished to be in that place. They are surprised to be there and to be loved by this one and to be close to this one. They are absolutely bowled over by this scene, this worship scene. And this is something important. We will never, ever grow in reconciled life. We will never grow in, in living out the peace of God with one another until this Jesus 
of this text becomes our only, our only worship. So long as we're worshiping other things, we will be undermining our ability to reconcile with one another. So long as we're putting other things in the center, we will never be able to draw together as every tribe, tongue, and nation. Nothing else deserves that center place but Jesus. Nothing else. Nobody else. No other relationship. Not your culture. Not your musical preferences. Nothing that you are tempted to worship should be allowed to get in the center. Jesus alone is meant to occupy the center. He alone is worthy of your worship. Because you know what? Money did not step down from on high in heaven, enter into human flesh, bear your sins, and take away your shame. Only Jesus did that. Success did not come to lift you up out of the miry clay. Success did not come to bear away your transgressions and lift the curse of God from you. Only Jesus did that. And because of his covenant love, because of his faithfulness, because he has rescued you, because he has loved you with an everlasting love, his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, he alone deserves your worship. Nothing else has warranted your worship. And when we do worship Jesus as the center, the more and more we dethrone all of the idols and the other things that we love to worship, the freer we will be, the more focused we will be in loving one another, in reconciling with one another, and in embodying this final scene. Do you see that? When you're free from the worship of money, you have time and bandwidth to love others and be generous to them. When you are free from the idol of success, you don't need to run around like a busy, crazy person trying to fill your life with accomplishments. You actually have time for other people. When you aren't worshiping popularity then you don't need that group to approve of you loving someone on the margins. You don't need their approval. Because you have the approval of the one who's at the center of this scene. You have the approval of the glorified Christ. You have the approval of Jesus himself. And so you don't need other people to tell you you're cool or to tell you that you're in. You can have all this world... Give me Jesus, the hymn says, and you have him. There's nothing wrong with popularity. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with money. They just happen to make for terrible God replacements. They cannot replace God. Nothing can. No one can. Nothing will. What we see, y'all, by this scene, what we, what we are seeing with the with the, 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 those gathered, they are clothed in white linens that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Is that, if we, here's, here's what we see. If we are going to be cross-cultural, then we must be cross-centered. And if we're going to be cross-centered, 
then we must be cross-cultural. It's both. That's what we see from this text. Cross-cultural demands cross-centeredness. And cross-centeredness demands cross-cultural. Because we are to have a love that is as expansive as the love of Jesus. You could call this what John sees. He sees diversity and he sees doxology. You could call this doxological diversity. It is a diversity that is not for the sake of winning points on social media. It's not a diversity that's for the sake of making sure that people don't just call you a racist or something. This is a diversity that is specifically geared toward glorifying the Lord. And it's a diversity that when lived out for his glory actually does bring him glory. It's, it's a God-centered approach to diversity because they're not willing to replace the center. This cross-cultural outpouring of worship in the new heavens and earth is the utterly climactic ending of the story. This is what it's all for. We live in reconciliation with one another. We seek to reconcile with one another because we want to practice that final picture. That final picture, I want to be there. I want to behold that. That is going to be astonishing. But you know what is a powerful and beautiful way to bear witness right now? It's for us to begin rehearsing it right now. God wants this diversity in his church. That's what Revelation 7 says. And the question for us is this. Do you want it in your church? God wants this diversity in his church. Do you want this diversity in your church? Do you want to think God's thoughts after him? Do you want to love what God loves? This is the goal. But let's look at pursuing the goal briefly. Briefly. Pursuing the goal. This text reminds us of the diversity of people we are to love. And there's a big, in our culture today, there is a big push for tolerance. Everybody's about tolerance. And here's the deal. Tolerance is not the Christian virtue. Love is the Christian virtue. You can tolerate someone while you look down your nose at them. You can tolerate someone while you think you're better than them. You can tolerate someone while you really despise them in your heart. You can tolerate people. Leaders, those of you who are married, I dare you to go home and tell your wife, baby, I tolerate you. <laughs> you will quickly learn the difference between tolerance and love when you're sleeping outside in the rain, all right? <laughs> nah, we have to be about love. And particularly a love that is shaped by the gospel. It's a love that doesn't give up on the beloved. It is a love that makes sacrifices. It is a love that sticks in through thick and thin. It is a love for better or worse in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow until the end. That's the kind of love we're called to. And this text shows us the kind of people, the diversity of people we are to love. And you have to realize this. These people, this diverse group in this scene, they don't just wind up there through a holy zap. God always uses means. He uses instruments. He uses tools. And that has always been the case in God's story. Think about it. God could have showed up in Egypt when Israel was in slavery, and he could have said, blah, free. 
Couldn't he have done it? He could have done it. But no, he chose to use Moses and the leaders of Israel in order to bring the people out. In the period of the judges, when the people were being oppressed by their rival enemies, God could have showed up and said, blah, and freed them from their enemies. But no, God raises up judges. God raises up kings. And God raises up Jesus. And now God has raised up the church. We are the means by which this scene comes to pass. And we must take responsibility for our part that God uses us. This is how this group of people is to come to faith. And you know why we're Christians in here today? Because there were people before us that came to us. There were people before us that shared the gospel with us and the gospel has spread. Do you realize that when Jesus told the disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the earth? Do you realize we're the uttermost parts of the earth? Do you realize our country is not the center of the Christian faith? We're the ends of the earth. And the only reason why we know Jesus today is because he was pleased to use his church in the spreading of the gospel to gather us for that final day. So we must take responsibility for playing our part in working to see this picture come to pass. God's going to use us. He's going to use our friendship with other people. He's going to use the way we worship on Sunday mornings, bearing witness. That's one of the things that Sunday mornings uh, is, is meant to accomplish in God's plan. It's witness. When we, when we worship, when we repent of our sins, when we hear God's pardon over our lives, when we come to the Lord's table and feast with him, when we hear God's final word over our lives and we know that it's a good word, a benediction, that is also one of the means by which God gathers. And we ought to be the kind of folks that are trying to make our churches places that are welcoming and hospitable for the diversity of our places. And our youth groups, aiming and aspiring that our youth groups would be a little foretaste of this. That's what we're longing for, to be the brochure of glory. A brochure of glory. That's what God wants from his church. Our Savior is a global Savior. Our hope is a global hope. And our mission is a global mission. And in the end, we don't have to wonder if cross-cultural love will fail or succeed. Because this final picture tells us that God wins. He will bring it to pass for his glory. And it is our joy to participate in seeing this final picture become a reality. Pressing on in faith, hope, and love until the day when Christ returns to make it all new again. May the peace of God rule in your hearts. I didn't plan that. That just happened like that. You see this confetti falling out. That was Jesus. Jesus was like, good job. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That wasn't Jesus. I was joking. <laughs> I don't know where that confetti came from, y'all. For real. All right. <laughs> May the peace of God Rule in your hearts as you go from this place. Live in the love of God in such a way that you're able to live in love with your neighbors 
and your friends and the family of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these students and for these leaders and these friends. Bless them. Fill their lives with your goodness. And I pray, Father, that you would help them to bear witness to this, to this scene. I pray that they would be a foretaste of it in their youth groups, in their gatherings, in their places, in their churches. And I pray, Father, that, that you would encourage them. I pray that the seeds of the gospel would grow and bear fruit in their hearts from now until the end of their lives. And I pray that they would know you to be a great savior of great sinners and that they would live out of that fullness. I pray your blessing on them. Keep them, Father. Get them home safely from this trip. And I pray that you would watch over them and grow them up in your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.